What's up, ladies and gentlemen? This is Mike Ruiz, and you are listening to The Sovereign Mindset. Today, I have on a special guest. She is an author and writing coach. She is the founder of Storybold and also a personal friend, Julie Tyler. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm very excited to um, be a guest on your podcast. I've, uh, I've listened to some of your episodes, and I really like what you're all about. And I'm definitely excited about um, what we're going to dive into today. Cool. So um, before we do get into that, um, you know, topic of today being cancel culture in the publishing industry and writing industry, um, can you tell my listeners a little bit about your background, kind of how you got to where you're at today? Yes, um, happy to. So I am a lifelong storyteller. I since I can remember. Um, my, I, I just remember loving stories. Um, I have distinct memories of coming home from the library with stacks and stacks of books that were, I, they were bigger than me. I, I was so little and these stacks of books, they were bigger than me. And I would just have my parents read books over and over and over and they would get tired. And I'm like, okay, but one more book, you know, I was just always fascinated, um, by stories and characters and like, what are these characters going to do? And what happens when you turn the page? what's going to be there, what kind of adventure is going to be there for me. And um, so I always grew up, you know, really loving to read, really loving stories. And I had a natural inclination toward writing. It always made sense for me to pick up a pen, pick up a pencil, some paper and express myself with words. And so I took to that very early on. And um, <clears throat> in college, I uh, declared English as my major. And so what that really means is literature. English is the name of a language, but we're not sitting there talking about English as a language all the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we talk about the history of the English language, but it, it's, mo it's, it's mostly literature and um, looking at other ways that people um, express themselves through writing, whether it's journalism uh, and other types of documents, like what's, what's the spirit behind it. So I declared um, English is my major in college, and then I went on to get a master's degree in literature, um, and then a PhD in literature, and I taught throughout that, and then after um, receiving a PhD, after earning it, I taught um, for a couple of years uh, at the university level, so that 10 years total, I taught um, college and university level composition classes, as well as literature classes, and then um, Three years ago, I created my own company so that I could work with aspiring writers, anyone who wants to write something, work with them outside of the university space and provide them a place where you don't have to enroll in some university and move across the country to get good instruction. You could have access to someone who's very passionate and um, you know wants to empower people. So that's so I started that company. Um, that's a big part of who I am. And I'm a writer myself. Storytelling has always been very important to me. And um, I'm, I'm always working on my own project. Hmm. So a question that popped up into my mind was uh, the difference between the way you are um, educating writers now or helping writers today versus like in a university setting. Do you, is there, is there a distinct difference? And do you have a preference or do you, do you find that your students have a preference? I have a preference for sure. I um, consciously and with a lot of relief left 
academic culture, the academic um, industrial complex, as I like to call it. I left that as soon as the, the first opportunity came for me to earn a living outside of that arena. Um, but in terms of like teaching the students there, so I mostly had students who were um, in the lower level classes. So incoming first years, second years, in some cases I might've had a, like a third year. Um, so we're talking about students who are mostly under the age of 24 with the, with the occasional non-traditional student who's a little older. Um, and so the curriculum, so not only are the students, I'm, I'm limited in terms of the demographics of the students because they're all the same age. They mostly come from well-to-do homes uh, or families where they have resources. Um, and so, so I'm limited in terms of who I gain access to in, in terms of teaching, but also limited in terms of the curriculum. Here's what you're gonna teach. Here's your textbook. Here's the sample syllabus, now go deliver it. Um, and of course I'm, you know, you, as, as a university uh, faculty member or college faculty member, you're also beholden to the academic calendar. So there's a semester, you do everything in that semester, then there's a break and then there's another semester. And so, you know, if, if a student doesn't finish their work, you know, they get an F within that span of time. Um, or if there's something that would take longer than a semester to teach, well, it doesn't really go into the instruction because it's, it would be too much. So there's, you know, there's certain limitations. Um, it has a certain cachet to be working at a university and to hold, to have a high academic pedigree. Um, but once you step out of it and see what the other opportunities are, uh, like entrepreneurship and um, leading a more creative life on your own terms, uh, definitely this is what I prefer. Yeah. I asked because for me personally, I was not a good student um, in English class. Um, just wasn't something I was into. Reading wasn't something I was into. But later on in life, I started getting into it and I started taking um, writing courses online. And the way that the writing courses are set up online, it, it caters more to your personal interests, which be, now writing became something of a joy where I'm exploring my own thoughts and my own ideas and I'm able to articulate them out on, you know, on paper or the computer. And so I, I, I just when you mentioned, you know, you working in the university level versus working now online. And I, I definitely see a clear distinction in how those two forms of educations operate. And I just see more and more of the writing world moving towards a more open and free style of learning how to write. Um, but that's a little bit um, off topic for what we're getting into today. I want to get into how we got here and wanting to have this conversation, we were talking about um, a book that you're writing. And we just started talking about a little bit of the concerns you have regarding all these, um, I guess, new policies and just an overall culture of, you know, let's just say cancellation, right? So cancel culture. I call it more like authoritarian left-wing politics entering like our institutions um, some people call it postmodernism, um, but I'm curious as to number one, how do you define cancel culture, um, and and how is it affecting the publishing and writing industry? 
Yeah, I think uh, well, you said that the you know the university versus online teaching was a little off topic, and I, I would say that it's very on topic because you just mentioned institutions. So the publishing industry is a commercial institution, and it has a lot of um, it has a lot of uh, connection to uni university culture. So literature departments mm. um, and the publishing industry, we could call these taste makers, they determine what we consider good literature. They determine what gets on the shelf. They determine what students are being assigned. They determine what a professor or a teacher gets to teach. So I, I think, you know, we, we, we need to uh, keep these things um, somehow in the conversation, whether it's today or just in general, when people are thinking about this, because uh, these institutions are very, very powerful. Um, now, to define cancel culture as I see it in the publishing industry or in the literary world at large, um, I want to start by saying what it used to look like. What it used to look like was book burning and banning books from, say, libraries or school curriculum. And the people who were doing the banning and the burning, these were extreme people. Okay, so for example, um, you know, church leaders who didn't want their laity to be reading whatever sexual content or something like that, or anything that wasn't spiritually, you know, anything that said that God didn't exist. Churches don't want that contradicted contradicted the doctrine. So even things like yes. Charles Darwin's theory of evolution was exactly yeah, yeah. yes. Um, so things like that, and then and then you'll have. Uh, when it comes to schools and, and banning books there, you know, you have parents who don't want teachers teaching their kids certain things. Um, and then you have just people who are outright cruel. And so they'll get a bunch of books, stick them in a parking lot somewhere and light a match. And, you know, as a statement to say, like, we don't want to hear what these people have to say. Just, a, you know, just going on this topic right now, it just seems throughout history that, uh, the people who were there authoritatively banning books, um, you know, and using the power of the state or, you know, just their own power of physical violence to stop people from reading. It just seems like those aren't the best people in history. You know, they, they, it just doesn't seem like they're the best examples of how humanity should operate. And it's just funny to me or not funny, but uh, sad as well, that we are in this state right now where we're banning, we're having to talk about banning books. So that, we're that's just- We're having to a, talk about it. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to say that it's just, it's just you know, really a, a weird thing to have this conversation now, especially here in the United States where, you know, we've founded this country on these like ideas of uh, a free and open society. But sorry to interrupt, I will- um, give you the floor again as far as uh the cancel culture and uh yeah the in how it's affecting the writing industry yeah so and, and that's a good point that you raise like and i wanted to point this out like this is what we used to think of as as cancel culture we didn't call it that we just called it book burning book banning whatever and it was always the literary people so the writers the literature teachers they were the one and librarians perhaps they would be the ones defending these books and not letting them be canceled and forgotten. It was the literary, you know, the literary world would say, no, we're gonna keep this as part of history. We're gonna keep this as part of culture. We're not gonna let this happen. 
that's, that's how we used to think of it. And now, now what's happening is um, what, what I've seen. Here's what cancel culture looks like in the publishing industry. And also this kind of um, partner, the university system, it looks like publishers canceling book deals with authors who are determined problematic. However, you know, that is defined not because the writing is bad, the writing itself is bad or unskillful, like, you know, somebody couldn't put sentences together or whatever, but because maybe this author goes against the narrative. And if they put this book out and people read it, then the publisher's going to feel like people think it's a statement that they're making rather than the author. So you've got uh, publishers who are just kind of quietly or not so quietly canceling book deals. Um, there are instances of shadow banning or straight up banning on social media. So people who have a counter message, they are, um, it's now almost impossible for them to get the word out there unless they have their own email list. Um, so we've seen instances of that. Um, there are literary journals, magazines, um, and again, publishers, universities. I see them putting out content now. I subscribe to a number of uh, journals and things and they'll put out essays and uh, different op-eds and things. They are deciding for us what is acceptable, what we get to read, what we get to think about what we read and what we get to feel. They are the ones, they are the taste makers. They are the self-appointed taste makers. And many people in the literary community, we've always trusted them. We have trusted them to put out good material to vet the incoming manuscripts and like, I don't wanna read this like poorly written stuff, give us the good stuff. We've trusted them to do that. We've trusted them to keep books on the shelves generations after the author has died. The author's dead, they're gone. And these, you know, these publishers have kept the books in circulation if there's a demand for it. And we've trusted them to provide access. We've trusted libraries, we've trusted uh, bookstores to keep these things on the shelf so that if for whatever reason we want to read a particular book, there it is. Yeah. You know, it, it does seem like, and this is just not a, in the publishing world, but this goes overall, you know, cause this is, I feel like it's permeating through different aspects of our society um, that the institutions have now succumbed to this kind of ideology uh, like a regressive, uh, almost Marxist, very controlling ideology um, in which the trust that was once there, they uh, have abused the trust. And now, you know, it's kind of been boiling underneath the surface for probably a few decades. And I feel like now it's all coming out and people are getting blindsided by this. And for a lot of people, they might not even know how to defend against it because they've never had to defend, you know, let's just say you're writing a story about, uh, I don't know, a, a certain character and they find that character offensive. And it's just because he's a man or something like that. He's a very masculine man. And, uh, you know, now all of a sudden you have to defend yourself against, uh, you know, writing a story about male chauvinism or something like that, you know, something that is completely taken out of context. And, um, you know, so I just see that these institutions now have kind of become corrupt and it's people are being blindsided by the kind of narratives that are coming out of them. And now we're having to defend ourselves and uh, push back a little bit. So 
I guess my next question there is, do you, do you see writers um, and authors pushing back? I know like for instance, JK Rowling, uh, she was attacked and now, um, you know, now we have like Dr. Seuss. Um, do you, what do you see coming out of that? Do you see coalitions forming? Do you see any organizations forming to protect what what was once like a, a staple of the writing industry? Like you said, it was once where, you know, the, the libraries and the institutions they developed uh, they defended uh, the desire they had a desire for individuality, for the freedom of expression, freedom of speech. But it seems like now that's being turned on its head. So, what do you see coming out of that? There's some very interesting cultural and commercial implications here. <clears throat> and also from the writer standpoint, like the artists ourselves, there's some very important things going on. Um, so let's think of an agent or an editor at a publishing house as a gatekeeper. They get to determine what is going to be put out there. And some of the subtle and not so subtle messaging <clears throat> lately among agents and like, how do you get your book published? Here, here, here's what you need to do to get your book published. You need to write um, a clear message, have a well-constructed plot, nuanced characters, a certain finesse with language. That's the basic standard, but now there's some messaging about uh, micromanaging who gets to write what. And so you mentioned mm. this example of what if you have a character who's you know some hyper-masculine guy and you know he offends people. And it's like, but it's just a character. We're talking about a story, an imaginative story. That's what fiction is. And I want to focus on fiction, you know, for just a second. Fiction is about imagining the lives of others, presenting characters that are semblances of human beings and allowing readers to imagine what it's like to live as this character. And sometimes these characters are villains. Sometimes these characters are victims. Maybe they're heroes. Maybe they are, you know, coming into their own and discovering something. And that is the whole point of storytelling is to allow for that experience. So now you have gatekeepers who are not just determining, like, here's the standard of quality. And if you can't write, we're not going to publish your book. But they're also micromanaging who gets to write what. Like, if you're, if you have a certain skin tone, you don't write about people, you know, characters wow. with other skin tone. Or if, you know, if you're a man, don't be trying to write female characters because what do you know about this? And I, and I think that <clears throat> most really committed artists, and I would, I am a very committed artist. I, like I want to do due diligence when it comes to rendering my characters. I conduct interviews with people who are not like me, so I can understand their viewpoint. I consider everything that they say, whether I like it or not, it doesn't matter. I just seek to understand other people and then use that as a way to create characters. Because I can't create, I can't write a book with characters who are all women in their thirties. <laughs> like <laughs> what kind of book is that? Mm -hmm. It's boring. So, and, and, and a lot of our other artists do due diligence as well. They are researching their topic. They are getting to know the nuances of a given topic or whatever. And yet they are still being micromanaged and told, well, because you're this, you don't get to write this. And if you even try it, we're not going to publish your book. We're not going to let the public decide. Yeah, that, um, I mean, that's amazing. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, but micromanaging even, you know, maybe it's, a, we see this in Hollywood uh, right now, kind of some narrative where it's like, oh, they don't have enough black characters or they don't have enough Hispanic characters or this minority, you know, they don't. Uh, and it just seems, a little ridiculous that they would go 
to the extent of telling an author who's writing uh, and it's just a form of expression, right? I, I assume when you're writing, it's a, it's a form of expression. You're trying to tell a story and micromanaging the way you tell that story and, and even the characters in that story. So it, it, it feels very authoritarian, um, the direction that we're headed in. And, um, you know, I guess, are, are you having other authors and writers speak up? Do you see any coalitions forming back on, to that topic? Or are we just at the beginning phases of this fight where it's, you know, for, well, I guess, I'm sorry. When did this start? That's a really interesting question. When did this start? Um, it's been a very slow moving process. And I would say maybe some inklings of it were happening before I even came of age as a professional and as an adult. Mm -hmm. Maybe I was still in high school or college and I didn't know anything. I knew nothing other than I like stories. I want to read them. I want to talk about them and write them. That's mm -hmm. all I knew. And I think you know, some of some of this was maybe happening then, maybe decades prior. It, it's really hard to pinpoint the exact origin. And, and that's what makes it really powerful is because we can't say, well, it, here's the source of it. It's, it's everywhere. It's, it pervades. Mm -hmm. And um, but to answer your question about like, what are writers doing? Is this just the beginning of of pushback? What I see is a lot of um, writers having gone along with the tastemakers version of things like, okay, yeah, I'll write a quality book. I'll, I'll, I'll master my craft and I'll, you know, all of this, anything to get my book published, I'll do whatever you say. Mm -hmm. And now I'm seeing uh, just in the conversations, I'm seeing some resentment of that. Like, you know what? I want to write this story and I'm doing this in good faith and I'm doing this from a good place. I'm not mm -hmm. trying to write a story that makes the world a horrible, cruel place. I'm trying to make it better, but you're telling me you're micromanaging it. And I'm seeing, mm -hmm. I'm seeing some authors kind of um, uh, reconsidering their options mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, maybe thinking like, do I really want to go the traditional route and play this little game with these publishers? Do I, or do I want to find some other opportunity, create my own audience? How, okay. So what are the options then? First of all, I guess why go with a publisher, right? Mm -hmm. And then how is that different from self-publishing? So a traditional publisher is gonna offer, um, so, so, so these are the ideas out there. This is not necessarily what I, I think at the moment, um, but the idea is that a traditional publisher is going to keep your book on the shelf long after you're deceased. Mm -hmm. um, they're gonna protect your legacy. Um, they're also going to, or, or with it, it comes some clout. So if you get your book published, you've been vetted, you've been accepted by the institution and it's a statement on the quality. So, um, you know, if you have that publisher's insignia or their logo, then it must mean that you're a serious author worthy mm -hmm. of attention. Uh, so there's that. Uh, you also, when you have a traditional publisher, you have a partner in terms of the business end of things. So most writers when they first start out they're not business people they're mm -hmm. they have whatever job they have and they have an idea and they do everything they can to write the best story possible and they know nothing about marketing about pr building an audience promotion they know nothing of that and so when you have a publisher you split the profits but you also divide up the labor the author 
is the writer, the artist. The publisher is the business end of it. And they have a whole team of people promoting, typesetting, making sure it's formatted properly. Um, and, and again, keeping it on the shelf. That's the, that's the cachet that comes with getting a traditional publisher. And uh, for self-publishing, what, what's the process of that? So self-publishing, you can um, be highly successful if you are willing to essentially start your own business. So mm. being a self-published author and actually making money from the sales and garnering an audience and all of that, these are, this requires a business mindset and a business approach. So I don't want to say you have to do this, but you get to, if you want to self-publish, you get to be the artist and you also get to be the person responsible for the sales and the marketing and the distribution. I could, yeah. So, and I could imagine that a lot of writers probably don't have a lot of interest with the you know, doing the day-to-day operations of the business side and then the mm-hmm. professionalism, the professionalism that comes with a, a publishing company, you know, it's probably, uh, you know, uh, it's a, it's a lot to, uh, it's a lot of work to match that I would imagine. And so, but now these publishers are basically controlling the content of what the author can write. So what are like some alternatives then for, for an author or a writer who's writing provocative, you know, and it doesn't even have to be prog. You know, the other thing about this stuff is that a lot of what they are saying is just number one, it's inconsistent with reality, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of this defies biological reality. Like JK Rowling, all she was saying was that, you know, Hey, women are, you know, women are different from men basically. And that we should, you know, we should consider that we should consider that fact. And, um, and she was just being attacked for that simple, um, statement. And this is a world-renowned author who sold, I don't know how many millions of copies of her books, and she's not even safe from this. So I could imagine for, you know, the, um, for a lot of smaller independent authors, um, you know, it's gotta be a scary, scary thing when you're, when you're writing something that may, um, be provocative. Um, so what do you see as like alternative routes for them? This is a really interesting point. I I think this is some nuance that isn't discussed enough that most people don't write controversial material, you know, but these tastemakers and the gatekeepers, they can come along and label anything they want as controversial, Mm -hmm. anything. If -hmm. you have a character who wears red shoes and all of a sudden red shoes are horrible, then, Mm -hmm. you know, you can be canceled because you're the author who wrote the red shoes character or whatever, (laughs) like I'm just picking something (laughs) random. But that's what it seems like is happening. It's like, let's pick some random thing to be wrong today and then make the people who did this before it was wrong, make them wrong now, Mm -hmm. strip them of their platforms and then they are blacklisted from here on out. That's definitely a thing that's happening. Um, But in terms of what is possible for writers, um, I think people have to write what their soul is telling them to write, whatever that may be. And they have to stick to that no matter what's going on in the publishing industry. And they have to, I I definitely think that writers need to be doing due diligence, research all of the information on a particular topic and write from a place of being very well informed rather Mm -hmm. than just like, oh, I want to write about this. Let me do it real quick. Really learn about a topic, really learn something and mastercraft, write the best, um, 
quality storytelling that you can that's you know really well constructed and and really learn language now so do that across the board and also get into a an abundance mindset and what i mean by that <clears throat> is that the traditional publishing options are not all there is there's an abundance of possibility in this universe no matter who's saying what and who's hashtagging what and who's canceling whom, there's an abundance of opportunity. There are, there's a reader for every story and with commitment to the writing process and commitment to the idea of, I'm going to get this out there. I have something to say. There are people who want to hear this. I'll do whatever it takes to get it out there with that attitude. You know, maybe you don't sell the millions and millions and millions of copies, but you're going to, you're going to do something. Mm -hmm. You're going to do something. And, you know, I, I think concerted, consistent efforts to put something out there and to make it be the truest, most authentic expression of who you are, that that's my new standard of excellence right there. Despite all the obstacles and hurdles, right? Kind of thing like Despite that. Despite all the obstacles and hurdles, you get it out there. Maybe you have to start a blog and you have three readers. You have three engaged readers on your blog. But those engaged readers, they tell their friends, and then you have six engaged readers. And then next year you have a thousand. And then the year after that, you have 10,000. And then now that you've got 10,000 readers of your blog, maybe you've also been writing a book and then you have an audience to sell it to, and you can bypass this entire system if you want, if you want. So that is actually what I see happening a lot. On, on the internet. I see people building an audience through various means, you know, some on our Twitter and their tweets, you know, uh, their tweets generate a lot of engagement, a lot of followers. And then they use the, that, fo that following to sell their, their um, books through, you know, um, because, because their audience has been able to build a personal relationship. And, and you could do the same thing with blogs and, and other, you know, social media platforms as well. But that definitely seems like a viable strategy and a strategy that I see people using right now, you know, in the moment. But like going back to what you said about, you know, um, there's about the kind of atmosphere that censorship creates. It's, it's, it's one of these chilling effects because especially when the rules are always changing and shifting. And again, I think this is all part of this you know, postmodernist agenda is that it, there is no, there is, there isn't ever a clear set of standards. Um, every, and there's also a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of double standards. And so you, you really never know um, what is, what is wrong in their eyes and what is right. And so if there's an institution that falls victim to this kind of ideology, then, you know, what you published one year could be canceled the following year. And so yep. there's not, a, there's not a lot of uh, a consistency there, or a, 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 there's not a lot of assurance that what you're writing is going to be there. So it also feels like the value from going with a publishing company is, is diminishing because you may, you know, if, if part of it was to keep your legacy to uh, going, well, you may, you know, you may not trust that they will do that. And exactly. um yeah. So um, there's this, there's a other author too. And here's the thing. It seems that a lot of this 
like I said before, flies in the face of science. Uh, one of uh, the most recent examples I could think of is by uh, this guy, Ryan T. Anderson. And he wrote When Harry Became Sally. And it's a book about transgenderism and, um, you know, more of how we should treat gender dysphoria. And, um, you know, Amazon now has pulled his book off after it's been on the shelf. And one of the things he, he wrote an article today, actually, on USA Today, I just want to read. Um, he said, we shouldn't be naive about the long-term impacts of a move like this. My book is still sold by other retailers for now, but Amazon's deplatforming will harm the entire culture of book authoring, publishing, and reading, as it will have a chilling effect on all aspects of the book market. How many authors will think twice before telling the truth on controversial issues? How many publishers will simply decline to publish books they're afraid will be barred from Amazon? How many readers will never even hear of the banned books? So it's, it, it just, it's problematic in multiple areas. Like there's, you know, second and third order effects. You know, the fact that we can never hear the arguments to a, to a certain topic or a certain conversation or a certain problem. And the fact that now people will not even bother writing a book because they know, oh, I can't get that, you know, that's gonna be barred from Amazon. So it does create this whole chilling effect on the industry. And it's a problem that I'm seeing, um, you know, and not only in the, in the publishing industry or in the writing industry, but overall also in, in content creation. But I like what you said, you just gotta fight through that and say what you believe in your heart. Um, but yeah, do you have any, any uh, thoughts on that, on the chilling effect that that, that will create? I do. Um, quite a few thoughts. And it literally keeps me up at night where I'm like, what am I going to do for myself as a writer? And what am I going to do to help the writers that I'm coaching mm -hmm. who are trusting me to guide them through this mm -hmm. process? I mean, I, like I, I have spent plenty of nights like not able to sleep because this is really chilling. And, and, and I, wanna, I don't want to focus it on me and my writers necessarily to answer your question. I, I want to talk more broadly. What you said, like, like readers don't even know that a book has been pulled in some cases, or maybe mm -hmm. there's this big campaign to announce it, like with the Dr. Seuss books. But it, it just kind of like these books are like being removed from, you know, the online spaces and maybe even libraries at some point, you know, these physical spaces. And when you do that, when, when this happens, you are, you are taking things out of literary history. Not only that, you're taking things out of human history, human history. And when we don't have a record of who wrote what story and who said what, then anybody can come along and say, oh, oh it's because it's racist. We're taking this out because it's racist. Okay, let me see the examples. I need to decide for myself. And in the case with the Dr. Seuss, like, yeah, okay, the, the organization itself can do whatever it wants with its stuff. But a lot of the articles that were talking about Dr. Seuss's books being removed from publication by the Seuss uh, Foundation or whatever, the articles themselves said, oh yeah, because it's racist. They didn't put a picture of the racist content in, in many cases. Some of the articles did, and then um, I did see some posts on social media where people like took a picture of the books that they have and posted the picture of the supposed racist content. 
which I don't want to talk about whether it's racist or not. What I want to talk about is when you tell me something is racist and you don't provide the cold hard evidence that this is the case, then I have to take your word for it. I have to trust your version and I have no way of deciding for myself. And then this keeps going throughout history and Seuss is not here to defend himself, you know? Yeah. So that's another problematic thing that I see because it does remove individual like autonomy and agency from the person. It's, it's again, an authoritative uh, decree that's saying, Hey, this is racist and we're going to take it down. And there is no rebuttal to it. You, You can't, there's no like, Hey, I don't, I don't see that as racist. Can you show me where it's racist? Okay. But that's not my interpretation of this picture or whatever it is, or this passage. And so, and a lot of what reading and reading stories is like the reader is coming up with his own interpretation of it. And so it really removes agency from the person. And again, it's just a, it just seems like a top down, very illiberal approach to literature. And it, it feels very regressive and that we're moving backwards in, in a time where, you know, we've all kind of come to this understanding that a free and open society is prosperous, like it creates prosperity and human flourishing. And here we are where we have our institutions that are now um, moving backwards on these like basic tenets of civilization. And so, you know, um, yeah. So for yourself, um, have you noticed the effects of the chilling effect on in your writing? Do you second guess yourself? Do you wonder, oh, should I write this or should I do that? I'm, I'm wondering, asking an author who's writing a book right now, mm-hmm. how has it affected you? So that's, that's a really great question. Um, as, a, as a storyteller, I would not consider my material all that controversial. I like to write about relationships uh, specifically men and women coming together and having romantic interests. And there's a little bit of social, I guess, cultural commentary in my books, but it's more, I don't make a statement about it. It's more of like, here's some things going on, reader, you take a look. So that's the spirit from which I write my stories. So I haven't second guessed the validity of anything I've been writing. I've really been second guessing like, what kind of publisher do I want to go with? Do I want to trust a traditional publisher or do I want to create my own thing? So that's a, that's a, one of uh, my next questions was, do you see other publishers stepping up? Like, do you see publishers stepping up on principle and saying, Hey, uh, you know, we know that this is kind of happening in the writing industry, but we're not going down that route. We're going to put our foot down and we're going to uh, you know, we're going to respect the author. Or do you see new publishers springing up and like meeting that demand from those authors who are now being canceled? Because I do feel like this is a slippery slope and it's only going to get worse um, before it gets better, you know? But uh, so I guess to that, to my question, do you see other publishers stepping up and meeting that demand? I've been doing some noodling around you know, just searching uh, mm-hmm. to see what what's what's out there. I see a little bit of movement. 
Um, you mentioned coalitions earlier. I think there, I think a lot of artists and creative types are feeling restricted and they're stepping up and stepping out and they're starting to connect with one another on social media. Um, I've actually made a connection myself with an artist who's very outspoken. Um, and it's been interesting to hear what he has to say. So I, I see some rumblings now with regard to publishers who are, um, you know, not tolerating this anymore and uh, pushing back. I haven't seen a publisher yet say that and state that, you know, our mission is to um, get the stories out there and let people be heard and blah, blah, blah. I've really seen more mission statements on, we believe in equal, mm. whatever, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I tend to just kind of push along past that. Um, I do see a a little bit of a rumbling in terms of um, new publishers coming up, you know, that don't currently exist, but people are going to create it and create a new platform. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have some ideas to do that myself to create my own boutique publishing hmm. enterprise and partner with authors and um, really set a new tone. Sure. You know, um, I was reading somewhere that the last time there was a serious movement, maybe not the last time, but one of the times that there was a serious movement uh, to ban books was, um, you know, in the early 1900s. And some of the best writers like Hemingway and uh, was it Fitzgerald uh, came out during that era. Um, and actually, you know, they... I guess there was a certain amount of courage that it took also because um, they were pushing against the tide. And so what do you see amongst your peers? Do you, do you think that more people should be speaking out against this? I know today you're, you're coming out and you're speaking up and, and talking about cancel culture. Uh, do you think that this should be more of a conversation um, or do you think that things will kind of just fizzle out? I don't see things fizzling out. Um, I think this needs to be more of a conversation. I think that, um, I think there needs to be some leadership on this front. And, um, but, but, but it's not a matter of like, let me just get on and, you know, Facebook Live or something and start talking about it. There needs to be some organization. There needs to be, there's strength in numbers. Mm -hmm. And there needs to be a very clear, solid message. Because um, one thing you mentioned was sort of the postmodern, like there, there's no moral center. It's like one day this is wrong and then the next day this is wrong. And like, what do people actually believe with this? And nobody knows on mm -hmm. that side of things. But if um, artists who believe in artistic freedom and having a platform and contributing to a nuanced conversation there needs to be, like you said, a coalition of some sort um, and a very clear, distinct uh, mission statement um, so that that, can, that mission can then be carried out. Um, and I think individual artists will feel empowered if they see that kind of uh, leadership, they will feel empowered to create their art and get it out there and stand by it. And not do this whole like, oh, I'm so sorry, I wrote this thing that offended you. I'm reformed now. I'm only going to write, you know, the 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 acceptable stuff or whatever, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I'm only going to sing about this, or I'm only going to paint the kind of pictures that you want me to paint. 
you know, there needs to be some sort of leadership for individual artists to feel empowered to be able to do that, you know, and, and not be stripped of their income and opportunities. Yeah, uh, you know, that's going to be a major battle going forward. I feel like, uh, especially that as well, um, you know, because it does feel like this movement is pretty rabid in the yeah. sense that it's not good enough for you to apologize. They want to ruin people, um, you know, and, you know, whether that's financially. And I do feel like there does need to be leadership, especially um, and coalitions forming that push back and also push back in a very academic way, making very like very reasonable and logical arguments against uh, a lot of these policies because they are, a lot of these policies are illogical and they're illiberal. And um, they're also, again, they don't make sense from a scientific standpoint, but yet they, they claim to come from a place of science and they claim to come from a, a place of compassion, but it just seems like it's completely the opposite there, you know? Yes, and that's, that's interesting. Yeah, that, you know, it's, it's for your safety, it's for your own good. Um, that shows up in the, uh, the pandemic arena, arena uh, but it also shows up in, I, I see that sort of um, impetus or stated goal going on in the publishing industry. Like we're taking these off the shelves to protect you. You know, like this is for your own good. You don't need mm -hmm. to read this. It's mm -hmm. gonna corrupt you or whatever. <laughs> like, I don't need you to like keep me safe. Safe from what? Safe from a book? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the the idea there is, I believe, that these are narratives, and these narratives are driven by, by oppressive um, power structures. And so, you know, even, even by entertaining them, you are, uh, you are, or reading them or any anything like that, you are uh, partaking in that oppressive power structure, which is Again, we've, we've lost our agency to decide. Um, and all of this is coming from a top-down institutional hierarchy. Um, and it, it just feels very repressive, very oppressive, very, um, it, it, it just, you know, it doesn't allow the human being to be ex express who they are. And that's one of the things that writing is supposed to do. It's supposed to allow the author or the writer to express their their thoughts and share them out there with the world. So, yeah. Is there uh is there anything else that you wanted to touch on as far as um what's happening in the publishing industry? Um, I just wanna I wanna leave with a couple of comments that um, I'm I'm just surprised at the number of people who seem to applaud the canceling and be like, yeah, get him, take him down. Mm. I'm, I'm really surprised about that. And, and people sort of like jump on that bandwagon because they don't want to be labeled as racist or whatever the bad thing is for a given moment. Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah, yeah, totally take them down. Whether they agree with it or not, they will sign on because then it removes the stain of, you know, being unacceptable, it, it exonerates people to just go ahead and sign on to it. And I'm just, I'm surprised by the number of people who are doing it. And I'm surprised by who's doing it. Some of my former compatriots in grad school, who we sat down and talked about stories over drinks. 
and the literature that mattered to us and our convictions as, as writers and educators. I'm surprised to see the people who are applauding the canceling. I wanted to say that. And then I wanted to say um, that the playbook for changing the fabric of a society or ruining a society is to attack uh, faith and spirituality. You attack women and children and you attack artistic freedom and a number of other things. But I, I really see this. If, if you really want to take power away from the people, this is how you do it. You, you slowly and steadily attack these things. Artistic freedom being one of them. Absolutely. Wow. That was, uh, that was powerful. And I am so grateful and thankful for people like you who have the courage to speak up and who are trying to, you know, be a, um, inspiration for other people as well. And also calling out your, you know, um, those people who are taking, I would say more of the cowardice approach where they're just succumbing and giving into this. And they may think that they're safe now, right? Exactly. But it's, it's only a matter of time. Like we said, this is a very, uh, this is a very um, fickle um, movement. You know, um, it can change at a whim and it's not long before you find yourself on the wrong side of like the mob in, in a sense. And so, you know, if you don't take a stand now when you have the freedom to do so, it's only gonna become increasingly harder and as as uh, these institutions clamp down more and more and more, and so it does feel like you know a you know like a pot that's on a slow boil, and we're all just sitting on there, you know. And uh, the time to jump out and say stuff is is now. So I really I really commend you. And anything Thank else? Thank you, Mike. For yeah, that that's really it. I I think this has been a really valuable discussion. And I appreciate the platform to be able to do it on your podcast and go through some of these examples and the implications and um, the, the subtleties that, you know, is it, it's, it's, it's the devil's in the details always. And I, I think being able to talk about that and examine it, very important. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, you know, this this podcast, I've been trying to figure out what, dire what direction to go with. You know, it's called so Sovereign Mindset. And, you know, this ideology that's permeating our society and you know, going through our institutions is very, is, uh, you know, antithetical to those ideas. You know, like I said, even, you know, you lose agency. And when, when a person loses agency, we lose their human spirit in this world and the yep. creative, the, the creative potential that they had. And so, you know, I do find it really important to, you know, dwell into these topics and talk about this stuff and in the different areas as well, you know, um, there's people are being affected in their school, you know, whether they're school teachers or parents, and there's people in their corporate jobs who are now having to deal with this stuff. And, you know, it's just good to hear from all these different perspectives on what's happening. Yeah. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on, Julie. And it was, uh, by the way, uh, is there, how can, how can listeners get in contact with you or how can they find out more about you? Yeah. Um, so definitely you can send me a direct um, email, Julie at storyboldstudio.com. Mm -hmm. um, so just message me there. You can also follow me on Instagram at storybold, story B-O-L-D, and um, participate in some of my live streams and other content that I post there. All right, Julie. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on. And I, you know what, we should do this again, catch up and see, see what else has ha happened in the publishing industry. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. All right. Bye.